Welcome to Access Utime Time Williams. NPR's Corey Flintoff was in Logan last week for several events hosted by Utah Public Radio. And uh, this interview with Corey Flintoff was recorded on Friday. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Very pleased uh, to have with me in studio uh, former NPR foreign correspondent Corey Flintoff. His assignments included Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and Russia. Uh, he was born and raised in Fairbanks, Alaska, now lives in Maryland. And uh, I guess the, your, your last position before you retired, Corey Flintoff, was... I, I was NPR's Moscow bureau chief. I mean, that's kind yeah. of a pompous title, yeah. really. I was the, <laughs> the uh, correspondent based in Moscow for NPR for four years. Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've, you can give us some background. We'll get into that later in the program about Russia, Ukraine, and obviously all of that much in the news with the with impeachment and election Absolutely. meddling. I never thought it would <laughs> be in the, in the, still in the news, but yeah. I'm glad it is, actually. Yeah. Uh, but I'd like to uh, – and another thing I'd like to get in the, later in the hour, you, you're writing fiction? Yes. Now? Mm-hmm. So uh, want we'll to talk about that later. <laughs> uh, I'd like to start with your you're born and raised in Alaska. Yeah, in Fairbanks. In Fairbanks, well, that's in the interior. That's right. Right. Yes. So cold. Yeah, absolutely, it's the coldest <laughs> part of Alaska, actually. <laughs> uh, and um, my family got up there because my grandfather was a gold miner. There was a big uh, gold oh, really? rush in in the Fairbanks area, and so my Grandfather was a gold miner. My father was born in a tent on a mining claim just outside of what is now Fairbanks. And uh, I was born there as well. Oh, wow. Um, and so, I don't know, if, did you anticipate a career in journalism? Not at all. Yeah. No, I'm, as you said, I'm, I've gone back to being a fiction writer. But uh, when I got out of college, I uh, imagined that I was going to be a fiction writer then. And I started uh, trying to write novels and that sort of thing that – young fiction writers always do. Um, but I got a chance. I needed a job, obviously. And so the job turned out to be journalism. Yeah. I want to back up just a, um, a minute. Um, I, I was seeing a little interview with you. You went to University of Chicago. Right. I went to Berkeley first. You went to Berkeley first yes, and then University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And you had a class from Norman McLean? Yes. This is a river runs through it. That's right, uh, fellow. How was that? He was an amazing teacher. For one thing, you know, he was a, he was a wonderful looking man. He was a tall, lean, sort of hawk faced man. He was a guy who, as we know from a river runs through it, you know, had spent most of his youth in the you know in in the woods, basically in rural areas, and and really understood that well. And yet, at the same time, he was a wonderful teacher and scholar, uh, especially of 19th century uh, poetry. He was an expert on Wordsworth, for instance, and he taught it brilliantly. Mm. He made um, you know, a few lines above Tintern Abbey come alive mm. in, in a way that I don't think a, a solely academic or scholarly person could do. It was because he had this dual life of being an outdoorsman and an academic that he was able to make those lines so vivid for us. Maybe you could relate. I, I, I'm just assuming that everybody in Alaska gets out. Well, that's true. I, I don't know. Is that a stereotype that's true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I used to spend my summers in a little cabin uh, 
with a, a guy who was a former gold miner, and uh, that was like my summer camp. Mm. You know, we yeah. were out in the woods with no running water, no electricity, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, that was just sort of the most fun for me. Yeah. Uh, so you're you're focusing on literature. At some point, you you take a turn for journalism. Yes. Well, the turn came in a little town in far southwestern Alaska. It's called Bethel. Um, at the time I got there, there was something like 5,000 people in the town, but um, there was a public radio station there that served an area that was actually the size of Oregon. Um, there were only about 27,000 people in this area. Uh, almost all of them were Yupiks, Yupik Eskimos, and uh, they were scattered through 57 different villages all throughout this area, which is part of the Yukon Delta and the Bering Sea coast. and really a marvelous area, tundra and rivers and lakes. Um, and um, I got to this town and I thought, well, you know, this is going to be a great place to write the great American novel because it gets dark in the wintertime and it's very isolated and all that kind of thing. But I did need a job. And um, so I went to the radio station and it's a bilingual Yupik and English station. And uh, I mentioned earlier, I guess, that Alaska is kind of a low-qualification state, or even a zero-qualification state, meaning that at that time, because it was so remote and it was so underpopulated, that um, you could get a job with almost no expertise or experience. And so I went to the radio station, and I found that the only thing you needed to get a job on the air was the ability to pronounce the station identification in Yupik. <laughs> so, in in Yupik. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I got a friend of mine to coach me through it. And uh, I learned to say it, and I can still do it. Yeah. Um, uchi, ni chugni sutkun ke mani Hmm. Means you're listening to KYUK in Bethel, Alaska. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, did you pick up other Yupik words? Uh, yes, yeah, I actually did on, enough to um, at least you know do the little courtesies, you know, the hellos, mm -hmm. goodbye, how long are you going to be here, kind of thing. Uh, I never learned enough to really hold down a serious conversation, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you're uh, you're working for this radio station. It's public station is it? It's a public station, yes. And, uh, you know, I, my first job as a reporter there was to cover the city council and the um, school board. Mm. And, uh, you know, the city council is just a, a raucous uh, thing, a bunch of eccentrics sitting around a, a table who all had long history in this town and uh, would squabble over issues that like went back to the beginning of time or something, you know. And I have to admit, this isn't part of my education as a reporter. When I first got there, I listened to them. I, we used to air these uh, city council meetings live. It was a bit like going out and airing a bit local basketball game. Uh, so I would take my equipment over there, and I'd get all the microphones set up, and then we would air it live. Um, and as I'm sitting there listening to my first city council meeting, and these people who are just brawling and squabbling with each other, I thought – what a bunch of buffoons. <laughs> you know, what am I doing here? What am I wasting my time here? And But what I didn't realize was that this city council meeting was the single most popular program on KYUK. Um, it had listeners all throughout the area who followed it like it was a reality show. But the result of that was that all these listeners knew more about public issues and civic issues in this town, you know, whether it was, you know, zoning for new lots or 
uh, building a seawall to keep the town from eroding away on the riverbank. You know, the people, voters in that town knew more about the issues, I think, than in in most every other municipality that I've ever been a part of. Mm. Um, you know, so I realized that these city council members were the people who got things done in this town. You know, they were leaders. They were committed. They were people who were willing to spend the time to make that town work. And I wound up having a great deal of respect for them. Hmm. So, you know, I got over myself. <laughs> and that's when I started to learn to be a reporter. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so you, you went there because it was presumably you'd have a lot of time to write. Yes. But at some point you decided, hey, I'd, I'd like to be a journalist. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I, I, after I covered a few local stories, I started to realize that these characters and these situations were way more interesting than mm-hmm. anything I could mm-hmm. cook up in mm-hmm. fiction. Um, you gave a little presentation to our uh, student interns prior to this. And, and, and so I, I, you talked there about uh, cultural differences, cultural misunderstandings, and how you – put your foot in it a few times and maybe how that prepared you to, to become a foreign correspondent. It actually uh, did. Yes, because, you know, I, I made terrible sort of bicultural mistakes in dealing with, with people in the Yupik community. Um, theirs is a very rich culture and a really beautiful and rich and economical language. And, but because, you know, it's a, the, these are people who, whose culture is built on living together in um, in very cooperative circumstances. You know, you don't survive in the subarctic without being extremely cooperative and uh, collegial. And so there are a lot of things in their culture that are designed to minimize um, conflict. And one of the things that took me a while to learn was, for instance, that you do not speak to an elder while looking them in the eye because it's thought to be aggressive and uh, and confrontational. And it took me a long time to learn that I was being rude and uncouth in dealing with people who were my elders and my superiors. Um, another thing I discovered that is in, in, in Yupik culture, as in many Native American cultures, you don't really speak about the future because that would be absurd. I mean, we can't predict the future, uh, especially in cultures that are very close to subsistence, you know, where your life really does depend on what's going to happen in the next hunting period or whatever. Um, you know, people do not speak about the future because it's just nonsensical to them. So mm-hmm. that when a reporter comes up to a dog musher, for instance, and says, how do you think you're going to do in the next race? He'll just say, We'll see, (laughs) because he didn't want to be rude to me, but at the same time, he thought I was asking an absolutely Mm -hmm. stupid question. Mm -hmm. So uh, to pick up on those differences, you you have to be, I don't know, you have to be somewhat open, don't you? Or or do you you just stumble around until somebody takes you aside or what what happens? No, I think you just have to be sort of open. But, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing that that working with among Yupik people taught me is, you know, that you do have to be open. You do have to be aware that not everybody thinks the way you do or not everybody sees the world through the same eyes that you do. And so that helped me a lot later on when I'd be reporting from uh, among, among Arabs in Iraq or among Afghans in Afghanistan or in India you know, or, or, or even in Russia and Ukraine, which seem you know, ostensibly to be more like our sort of European culture. They're not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you went from Bethel to Anchorage. 
Yes. Right? Uh, next, and then the statewide. Uh, right. Alaska uh, has a statewide, statewide network. network. And, um, it, I, did a, I was the host of, a, of an evening news program called Alaska News Nightly, which is basically a half-hour version of uh, or copy of All Things Considered. Mm-hmm. And uh, at a certain point, you had your catastrophe. That's it. And I think people are familiar with this, uh, of, of how reporters, not only NPR, NPR reporters, but others, get catapulted to the national stage based on work reporting on whatever the local catastrophe is. Exactly. Yeah. Disasters and catastrophes give you the opportunity to work for whatever the next, um, the next uh, news organization up the line is. And in my case, it was the 1989 uh, Exxon Valdez oil spill in Prince William Sound, biggest oil spill in North American history. And um, during that time, I had the opportunity to, to start producing stories for NPR so I got acquainted with the uh, editorial people at NPR. And I also met some fabulous NPR reporters who'd been sent there to help cover this uh, catastrophe. And they were a very young Danny's Wordling and an even younger Ira Glass <laughs> from This American Life. <laughs> hmm. So Ira, who must have been about 12 at the time, yeah. <laughs> came up there. And uh, that was one of his first uh, reporting experiences yeah. in the field anyway. And uh, these guys were wonderful. They were mm. really good. I've always only thought of Ira Glass as the Samaritan Life, but he he was reporting at that point. Yes, he was. Yeah. I mean, he's done practically every job that can be done mm. at NPR at one yeah. time or another. But um, yeah, uh, both these guys had that combination of energy, curiosity, respect, and uh, um, integrity, I think, that makes a really good reporter. Mm. You also, um, you essentially got married out of this. Yes. As a matter of fact, yes, I met my wife, <laughs> who was then the technical director for Alaska Public Radio. So, you know, the audience can envision, you know, how these radio stations are set up. There's always a piece of glass mm-hmm. between the uh, the engineer, the technical director, and the the studio people. And uh, I'd see her on the other side of the glass, you know, raising her hand and giving me the sign to start talking or to stop talking. And um, so that turned out to be something that she found that she rather liked to do. (laughs) But when the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill happened, we wound up working together for about 43 straight days. (laughs) And uh, we were together all the time. By the time we were done, Mm -hmm. we pretty much had to get married. Yeah, yeah. You'd either end up hating each other or or maybe getting married, I guess. that's And you got married. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing my um, interview with NPR's Corey Flintoff. He was reported from uh, many uh, uh, areas, hotspots. We'll get into his uh, career. He and his wife moving to Alaska, uh, moving uh, from Alaska to uh, Washington D.C. Later in the hour, we're going to uh, get his take on the current news regarding Russia and Ukraine. More following this. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. And we're pleased to have NPR's Corey Flintoff uh, on the program today. Uh, he's retired now, but he's a former NPR uh, foreign correspondent whose assignments included Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and uh, Russia. And uh, he was in Logan last week for events hosted by Utah Public Radio. We recorded this uh, interview on Friday. So then I, uh, at that point, you, the two of you decide, uh, well, let's go to Washington, D.C. and see if we can make this. Is exactly. That- yeah, I saw, uh, you know, how much 
people like Danny Zwerdling and Ira Glass loved their jobs and how great they seemed to be at doing it. And I thought, I want to try this. So we decided we'd move to Washington, D.C. and see if we could get jobs with NPR. And uh, we were a bit like immigrants. You know, we thought we'd just go for a couple of years and then come home, you know, just buff up our resumes a little bit and then come home. But mm. Like so many people, we got stuck in Washington mm-hmm. and we've been there ever since. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to talk about Russia and Ukraine. Much in the news, uh, Corey Flintoff, a former NPR foreign correspondent, uh, knows a lot about that area. He's lived lived there and reported there. Uh, but I want to get a little bit more of your, your bio. Um, so then you you got a job as a newscaster. Yes. NPR newscaster. That's where a lot of people would have will have heard you. Exactly. Well, of course, you know, as you know, the, the beauty of being a newscaster is that you get to say your name at the start and finish of every newscast. And uh, so that, in my case, that was 12 times a night, five days a week, which does help to get your name out to, to the public. Mm-hmm. So the, the, these are uh, fairly brief newscasts, right? They're yeah, five minutes. Five minutes. And and you, you're responsible to pull everything Mm-hmm. So uh, you give one, you give once an hour, obviously, yeah. and then in the meantime, you spend your time pulling together the material for the next newscast. Yeah. So what? Uh, uh, I mean, that's not time probably during the job, but but reflecting on what is news and what should be news, right? And what you know, it has, did that change during that period of time? Um, you mean in in terms of the, in the, the content, the perception, the, the, the yeah. national perception, the, the national or perception. My perception? Well, both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in terms of the national perception, obviously, not so much during my tenure, although, you know, I, I would say that my tenure was marked by um, the wars, uh, America's wars, you know, and, uh, and um, 9-11. Uh, so it seemed to me that we spent a lot of time reporting on the war. Um, now, I think, obviously, you know, national politics is the is the big subject and you know so yes that has shaped uh both the public perception of what news is about and it's also shaped the way that news organizations have changed themselves and reorganized to cover that story Mm -hmm. um uh, maybe as a newscaster or a citizen however you want to answer this um, and now we have the phenomenon of fake news and the accusations are thrown around, you know, don't listen to this news outlet, only listen to this news outlet. And we don't have a common agreed upon mm-hmm. uh, source of objective truth. Well, this is why I promote public radio, because, you know, public radio is not always blameless about bias and that sort of thing. But public radio is uniquely accountable to the audience. That is to say, we don't exist without audience support. And if the audience thinks that what we're delivering is fake news or, or that we're uh, promoting hoaxes and that kind of thing, then the audience can punish us by not giving us that support. So I think in, uh, in especially in nationwide studies that uh, NPR comes out pretty close to the center. It's something that we have to do because we have to speak to everybody. Hmm. No, you're uh, you're in town to support Utah Public Radio and specifically student interns, student reporters, yeah, the I'm next to- generation. You're passionate right. about this. I am totally thrilled by this because I'm here to help inaugurate um, uh, an internship program that we hope will help. Uh, I, as you know, of course, I mean uh, Utah Public Radio has a great inter- internship program. Now, this will help more 
um, students get hands-on experience in uh, all aspects of radio station operation, and it's pretty thrilling. I, we're, mm-hmm. we're, what we're going to do is try to find funds to, to bring people in and support them during a real internship. I'm not talking about you know making copies or uh, bringing coffee, but doing actual news jobs mm-hmm. that are going to be of use to them further on in their careers. We're titling the, the whole thing. You're giving the, some talks on the cost of trust. So you talked a little bit about there about trust, right? The, the news organization has to have the trust of its audience. Absolutely, yeah. That's the that's the central purpose. Um, takes money. So you you in this previous presentation you said that's one thing you've never been shy about is yeah, absolutely is raising the money. I think of it as shaking the can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be talking about another part of that: the trust between reporter and source, right? Yes, uh, as well. Um, so you're uh, – how many years did you – were you a newscaster? 17. 17 years, mm-hmm. newscaster for, for NPR. Then at a certain point, uh, you get the itch to be a reporter again. Yes, this was, uh, this was connected to my, my, my parenthood <laughs> in that, you know, during the time that – the reason I – one reason I liked being a newscaster so much is the schedule would give me my mornings free. And so it was a chance to play with my daughter for, you know, her um, – her entire growing up period. But of course, by the time she got to high school, she was no longer so interested in this arrangement. And I got again to go back to reporting. So I started to volunteer to to do overseas coverage um, beginning in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, volunteer being the key word, I guess they, you, <laughs> yes, they, didn't, well, they didn't force any reporter to go. That's you, right. NPR does not compel its reporters to do war coverage. Yeah. Although um, they had a bureau there, right? So there are people permanently there. Yes. And reporters coming and going, what, one month shifts or what? Well, uh, we, uh, we would have a, a Baghdad correspondent, the person who is uh, responsible for overall coverage of the Iraq war. And, and this is – we're talking about an enterprise that is still going on, but it's gone on for years and years, so, you know, along with Afghanistan. It's one of our, our longest wars. Um, so that meant that, that somebody is always there. But because the war coverage is, frankly, you know, really psychologically demanding and stressful, um, we would bring people out quite often to get, give them a break, a well-deserved break. And then they'd send somebody like me in for a month. Mm. You know, and I would, I would do their job, basically, which includes embedding with military units and that kind of thing. Mm. What 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 are your biggest takeaways from that time? You were in Afghanistan. You, you were in Iraq, Afghanistan. You some hot spots. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the biggest takeaway, I well, I mean, from from a journalistic point of view, is uh, is how much teamwork and coordination it takes to do that kind of reporting. You know, unlike some news organizations, we don't just parachute a celebrity reporter into a place and have them for a few weeks, you know, to to sort of be the face of, of the story. We have people there all the time who, you know, and as a reporter, you're constantly learning. Um, you're constantly learning your beat and learning your region and, you know, developing the kind of background information you need to be really reliable. And that means you have to have a whole establishment. In Baghdad, for instance, we had a house. And because it was outside the green zone, it was in uh, Baghdad City, uh, we had to have our own security people. We had to have a cook. We had to have um, a team of 
translators and fixers and producers who would go out with us. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a very costly and very complicated um, little ballet to choreograph, you know. Now, I assume you're, I mean, you know, you're in the middle of a war there. Um, you're in danger. Were, were there any times where you especially felt that? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I first got there, Baghdad itself was so dangerous that you really couldn't leave um, the compound unless you were going to be embedded with a U.S. military unit or if somehow you were disguised so that you could drive through the streets. And I've actually worn hijab, um, mm. a scarf uh, and a facial covering, uh, and sat in the back of the car in order to go from one place to another in, in Baghdad. But when I was embedded with U.S. soldiers, I always kind of felt that, number one, that you know, their, their presence would protect me. And I mean, not that I thought they would suddenly jump to my protection if we ran into a roadside bomb, for instance, or, a, or an ambush or something like that. But I thought that you know, they would, their training and their doctrine and everything would lead them to make good decisions and that you know, we'd be as safe as you could possibly be. Uh, you, um, you had a chance uh, then to become bureau chief in India. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, for about uh, two years, a little under two years. Yeah. And one of the most fabulous uh, opportunities to report yeah. I've ever had. It's a uh, wonderful uh, country. Well, uh, why fabulous? Uh, the country, you, you like the country? Yes, because yeah. there is no end of stories in mm. India. You know, yeah. and, and the problem is, uh, is finding out what you're going to do on any given day because there's so many fascinating things. And it, it's such a vibrant society. Mm -hmm. You know, it's full of problems, of course. But... Um, Vibrant. There are so many vibrant cultures in India that you just can't help but be energized by it. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, people, I guess, listeners have probably been itching to for us to get to Russia and, and Ukraine. So let's go there. <laughs> you, you became Moscow bureau chief. Yes. Um, and uh, let's talk first about Russia and then then Ukraine. Um, so in in Russia, I just want to quote from a, an a interview you gave to. Um, uh, uh, station in Alaska. Um, you said you routinely asked for comment. Uh, you routinely asked for comment from the Kremlin for every story. You were turned down for every story. You also knew it was likely your phone and computer were monitored. And uh, you told a story about how you and, and your Russian colleague were followed by uh, plainclothes police. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if you tell us that story. This was, this was in Kaliningrad. Kaliningrad, you know, is an exclave of, the, of Russia. That is to say, it's not part of – it's not within the actual borders of the Russian Federation. It is a little wedge of land that's squeezed between um, Poland and Lithuania. And it is um, – it used to be called Königsberg. It was a it was a German city at one time. Uh, it was seized by the Soviets in in World War II, and then it, forever after, it's been a, a military exclave of the of the uh, of Russia, and um, so it's very important to them because of its military strategic purpose. And uh, we went there. I went with my translator uh, Sergei, and we were doing a story not about the military aspects of this place, but uh, various other political stories. 
And before we went, of course, we did a, a series of requests to people in the local government asking for interviews. Well, we never got them, mm. you know, and that's mm. standard procedure for people who are involved in government in Russia. But when the, we got there, uh, we arrived at the airport, and uh, Sergei looked around and he said, those two guys, watch them because they're going to shadow us. Mm. And sure enough, they did. Every time we'd turn around, these two guys would be there, and they were, they were kind of – they didn't look like really professional shadowers or professional undercover police. They just like a couple of lunky characters, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, for instance, we'd be uh, – Koenigsberg or uh, Kaliningrad is a city of bridges, famous for its canals and its bridges. And we were – as we were going around from interview to interview, you know, we – at one point – we crossed over one of these bridges, and we realized that we'd been going in the wrong direction. So we immediately about-faced, and of course, as soon as we did, here's these two guys right behind us, and they suddenly pick out their cell phones and, and start looking very busy, you know, and it was just such a Keystone Cops kind of mm -hmm. uh, an occasion that we didn't take it all that seriously, but mm -hmm. they were watching us the whole time. Mm -hmm. What was the what was the Kremlin's attitude, the government's attitude, when you would report unfavorably about uh, the Kremlin or Putin? I would occasionally be called in. Uh, you know, the foreign correspondents in Russia are um, under the auspices of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they're the people who make who decide whether you get a visa, for instance, or they decide whether to expel reporters if they don't like something they've done. So I would get called into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, information officer who would complain, you know, and sort of berate me for something or other that I did. But, uh, you know, I was never overtly threatened or anything like that. And I was never denied a, a visa or an opportunity to travel around. Mm -hmm. uh, now, at least there are allegations that the Kremlin, that Putin has had various people killed, right? I, I don't know about uh, yes. <clears throat> foreign correspondents like yourself. Did you ever feel in danger? No. Foreign correspondents are pretty much protected. The, almost the worst thing they can do, at least up until now, is throw you out. And they, they do. They've thrown out quite a lot of good reporters. You know, as my foreign editor used to tell me, he said, there's, you know, if you do a good story, there's no shame in being kicked out of a country. <laughs> but so that never happened to me. But uh, Russian reporters really are in danger. And there's a, there's a whole list of people who have been who have mysteriously been killed, uh, whose cases have never been satisfactorily resolved or or accounted for, and certainly not punished. Some of the best reporters, best investigators in in Russia, have been essentially assassinated. Mm -hmm. Now, the people you talk to, the people who would uh, talk openly, criticize the government. Um, that's got to be a sensitive thing. You're a reporter. They're willing to criticize the government, but, but you both know they're probably going to get in trouble. Yes. You know, it never failed to surprise me and actually to make me rather proud that there are, you know, there is a vibrant um, civil society in Russia, and it's comprised of people who are incredibly brave and, uh, and incredibly willing to step forward and tell the truth. Say their piece uh, to a foreign reporter, even though it means that they're pretty sure that they're going to get in trouble for it. Mm. Um, and I tried to be as sensitive as I possibly could with people because, you know, you'll be in a situation like we are now and, you know, you get relaxed and you tend to forget that you're being recorded. Uh, 
so, you know, I would periodically remind people, especially when they said something that I knew was going to be particularly sensitive, I would remind them that, uh, you know, we are being recorded here. You know this will be broadcast and give them the opportunity to back away from something or to, to put it off the record if they wanted to. That almost never happened. Hmm. People stand up, you know, and these incredibly brave people stand up to the government every day. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Corey Flintoff, former NPR newscaster and forward correspondent and uh, bureau chief. And uh, we'll have more with Corey Flintoff following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is Corey Flintoff, former NPR foreign correspondent. His assignments uh, took him around the world and uh, to Ukraine and Russia, which gives him a special expertise on uh, current events unfolding. Uh, we recorded this conversation with Corey Flintoff when he was in town last week for events hosted by Utah Public Radio. I wonder what you'd say about, um, you know, you, you lived and reported in, in a country which has a veneer of democracy, but is not a democracy, and is quite autocratic, and some repressive methods used to control uh, the people. I guess, first of all, the, the, you know, the, you, you've talked about courageous people coming forward and being willing to talk. Uh, my first question under that, this heading would be, um, where do people get the truth? Because they're not, they're getting propaganda from, from the government, from state media, right? Right. Well, and, and actually, things have deteriorated um, since I first got there, which is in 2012. When I first got there, there were, there were already independent media were already suffering, and many independent media outlets had already been taken over uh, by oligarchs who are connected to the Kremlin. Um, they still maintain their ostensible independence, but they they parrot the the Kremlin line. Uh, but there were a number of news outlets when I first got there that were still quite independent. There was a, the, both radio and television and uh, a couple of newspapers and news magazines especially that were doing good independent reporting. Um, little by little, most of them have been shut down mostly by um, cutting off their funding sources, uh, convincing people not to advertise with them, uh, taking away their licenses. Uh, and so in, in some cases, uh, those news media and, and their reporters have moved abroad. There's a, a news organization called Medusa now that I believe is broadcasting from Lithuania or Latvia. And um, so they're, they're a big thorn in the side of the Kremlin because they do primarily internet uh, reporting. And uh, they have a good following around the country. Russians are very sophisticated in their use of the internet. And uh, so, you know, people who want the information know where to find it. Hmm. Let's talk about Ukraine. You, re you reported from Ukraine during some very important yes. tumultuous times. Right. And the, and the first, the first, time I got to Ukraine was to report on uh, what they what is now called Revolution of Dignity. Uh, you may remember this was in 2014. 
that there were huge demonstrations in Kiev and in other major cities throughout Ukraine. You know, Ukraine is a is a big country. It is, uh, if I recall correctly, it's uh, around 140 million people, um, and you know, a lot of major cities, and. It had, of course, since independence in the early 90s, uh, gone through a, a series of governments, uh, a couple of revolutions, um, terribly corrupt governments, various upheavals. And uh, at the time, uh, it was being governed by a, a president, Yanukovych, who was very pro-Russian, very much linked in with the Kremlin. And... Um, also in, incredibly corrupt, I mean, grotesquely corrupt, as people later found out after he had been ousted. So during the, the Revolution of Dignity, I watched in Kiev as the streets were filled with tens and tens of thousands of mostly middle-class people coming out in the middle of the winter as terribly cold and uh, facing down government police and troops and goons and provocateurs because they were absolutely sick of the, of the corruption and the overlordship of Russia. Mm -hmm. And they successfully overthrew Yanukovych, who went running back to Russia with as many as his, of his billions of stolen rubles as he possibly could, and uh, is there still. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, and it was found afterwards that he and his cronies had mansions and uh, imported paintings and villas on the Riviera and yachts and, like I say, grotesque corruption. And the people, to their credit, stood up and threw that off. Mm. Now, Ukraine has an ever-present pressure from Russia. Russia is encroaching. Uh, yes. It's essentially a, a war going on. Uh, the, yeah. the, not to mention Crimea. Right. Um, and that's the backdrop for uh, the you know the events which uh, which are leading looks like to impeachment of uh, President Trump. I wonder what you what don't people know? Do you think about Ukraine and Russia that they should know as a backdrop for all of this? Yeah, I don't know if people realize how much Russia um, wants and needs to control Ukraine. You know, they say that uh, Russia without Ukraine is just a country, but with Ukraine, it's an empire. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, Ukraine is, especially because of its agricultural potential, is one of the most valuable uh, pieces of the former Soviet Union. And, uh, but not only that, there's a long tradition of, of the fact that Ukrainians and Russians are related fairly closely culturally and linguistically although the Ukrainians would tell you that they are a separate people and they're very proud of that fact, Russia has always regarded Ukraine as a, as a part of the Russian Empire. Um, Ukraine is sometimes uh, referred to as Little Russia. Hmm. You know, so there's, there's both a psychological and historical uh, backdrop for the Russian attitude towards Ukraine, and there's also an economic and political aspect to it. And for... Um, Vladimir Putin, who sees himself as the restorer of, um, if not a Soviet empire, at least a Russian empire, and the restorer of Russian greatness, um, Ukraine is absolutely necessary to be part of 
Russia. Hmm. And it seems to be uh, Russia, maybe taking a page from China, can perhaps play the long game. Yeah. Um, for example, Crimea, uh, great outrage, um, sanctions at, at the time, and then maybe slowly. Uh, the latest report that I saw was um, you know, that Google and, and Apple who do these do the maps, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so have, have recently um, said, okay, Crimea is, is part of Russian territory. Mm-hmm. Showed it on the map. Yeah. Maps in Russia show Crimea as being part of Russia. Uh, maps elsewhere still show it as being part of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a that's a piece of hypocrisy that's a little hard to swallow. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the seizure of Crimea was uh, an incredibly um, reckless but a, gram- a gamble on the part of Putin, but it was one that turned out to be extremely successful. And it was, you know, I mean, it's the first big land grab since World War II. Yeah. And he essentially got away with it. And uh, I think that there, you, you know, there, you, you may recall that the, the little green men story, that that Russian troops who were part of a, a big Russian naval base um, that was leased in Crimea uh, invaded the rest of the uh, peninsula uh, using wearing uniforms that had no insignia on them and they insisted that they were not Russians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in this incredibly bold and hypocritical um, campaign, they took the country over. They held a false referendum, absolutely no legitimacy to it at all. Uh, in fact, uh, Ukrainians in Crimea and uh, especially um, Crimean Tatars boycotted this referendum. So as a result, the people who voted in it were pro-Russian, uh, many retired Russian military people who lived there. So you know this lent an aura of legitimacy, and and under the Putin regime, an aura of legitimacy is pretty much all you need, and mm. then presumably you can do whatever you want. Mm. So they did seize um, uh, Crimea. They're ill. They're illegitimately there to this day. And I think that, uh, you know, the, uh, the Western world, as it were, uh, Europe and the United States and, and our allies need to stand very firm against that illegality. Uh, I may have misspoken. Uh, Apple, uh, the report says Apple has changed the maps. I don't mm. know about Google. but uh, oh, That's right. Yeah. Um, so election interference, um, does, does this – you know, from your reporting, does this fit a pattern that uh, is something that Russia would do? Our intelligence, the U.S. intelligence community, is very, uh, you know, unanimous in saying the Russians did interfere. Uh, not only you know Facebook and influencers, but uh, trying to hack into actual voting systems, and that they're probably going to try again uh, in in 2020. Does this fit a pattern? It, it absolutely you does. You know, I, I left Russia in uh, 2016, so just as all this stuff was happening. And I have to say, and I think this is true of all the cor- foreign correspondents in Russia, we weren't really aware of the extent that this was going on as a, as a kind of foreign interference. But we knew very well that it was going on in domestic politics in Russia because Russia already had these troll farms of people – who were 
primarily operating domestically, you know, and inserting themselves into chat rooms and uh, conversations throughout the country and uh, promoting the Kremlin line very much. I mean, this is like practice for what eventually happened in the United States and also for other countries in Europe. Mm. Um, so we knew that that much was going on. So ultimately, I was not very surprised to find that the Russians had taken what they'd learned from this, this earlier domestic intervention and applied it to the United States. Mm. One thing that's that I'll just I'll just say is concerning to me, and I'm assumed to to many people, um, starting to see a little bit of the line from certain elements in in our politics that you hear from Putin. Putin's message often, at least for I see it from reporting, is uh, you call me bad, well everybody's bad, right? And we don't know for sure anything because it's all it's everything's confusing. Yes, right. You you just you just you throw up cloud of smoke. And then hope that people are cynical. Yeah, and it's said that this kind of Russian disinformation is not designed to make you believe something. It's designed to make you believe nothing. Um, and so I don't know if you're if you're I think I'm seeing some of this in the U- U.S. at this yeah, point. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, it's something that obviously because the Internet has opened up this grand new field of influence, a way to reach the, the public in a way that wasn't possible before. It was only a matter of time, I think, before American actors would, would see these tactics at work and realize that they could be adapted to whatever kind of local American disinformation that you want. And then you can get your disinformation amplified by bots, and, uh, and Russia seems to be deeply involved in that kind of thing, amplifying messages that they think will be divisive for Americans. Mm. Uh, before we leave this, anything else that you'd like to say that, uh, that you know, to help people understand Russia, Ukraine, and this whole, you know, the whole, well, uh, the, you know, President Trump's call and, and everything related? I did want to address this conspiracy theory that Ukraine was involved in um, trying to influence the U.S. election and that Ukraine and not Russia was the bad actor in this case absolutely untrue. Um, You know, it's a little confusing when we speak of Russia did this or Ukraine did this, because obviously it's the leadership of those countries that does things. And, uh, you know, it's not the Russian people. It's uh, Putin and his circle in the Kremlin who who are the bad actors here. Um, In Ukraine, there never was a concerted effort, as there was in Russia, to uh, spread disinformation in the United States or, uh, for instance, to harm the the Trump campaign. Uh, There were, in fact, individual Ukrainians, including the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, who spoke out against the notion that the United States should probably accept Russia's annexation of Crimea uh, because that is an absolutely existential point for Ukrainians. They cannot accept or they cannot allow the rest of the world to accept the idea that their territory now belongs to Russia. It's absolutely, it would be so destructive to them as a nation. So there was pushback from individual people, but there was not concerted government pushback. And I think that's a distinction that we have to make. Just have a couple of minutes left. I do uh, do want to talk about your 
new hat you're wearing, fiction writer. <laughs> yes. After <laughs> you set out to do this many years ago, now you're right. You're, well, you're after, writing some fiction. Tell us about this. Right, 39 years in the uh, in the news business, I am finally enjoying the opportunity to just make stuff up. So I find that I really like going back mm-hmm. to fiction writing. I'm doing short stories now. Primarily. Short stories, okay, yeah. Uh, can people find these? Yeah. Um, Yes, I, I've been in a number of uh, uh, literary reviews around the country. Glimmer Train, uh, Oregon Literary Review is one okay. that I've been in, the Virginia Quarterly Review. I also write uh, fantasy stories, and I've had, a, I've had a story in fantasy and science fiction magazine. I've got one coming out um, in the January issue of fantasy and science fiction, a new one. So that's something that appears on the newsstands. People can find that. Uh, you know, and it's a it's a slow process. I don't think I'm going to build myself into bestsellerdom <laughs> in mm-hmm. what's left of my literary career. Yeah. Uh, final question: You're retired now. Uh, I might, do you still have the itch? Uh, something big happened somewhere, and you you think, boy, I'd sure like to pack my bags and no, head because out there. you know I know how much work. When I when I hear my fellow correspondents, and especially the new young reporters who are coming along. Uh, when I hear them reporting from these various areas, I know how much work that was. And, well, I as a listener, and uh, I'm, I still am a news geek, uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by these stories, and I follow them closely. Um, I don't – I no longer feel the itch to run out there and report them. Hmm. Uh, good time to retire then, I guess. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Corey Flintov is a former NPR foreign correspondent, uh, former newscaster for NPR, and a former Moscow uh, bureau chief. And uh, he uh, is in town uh, helping us to uh, set up funds for uh, student reporters. So we appreciate that. Yes, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure.